Hi, my name is Isaac, lead pastor at New Hope Foursquare Church. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our Sunday services are at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. Find out more at www.inewhope.org. Uh, we are spending three weeks at base camp before we go through Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which is called Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, um, the definitive teaching uh, of Jesus, not all of his teaching. So last week, you can catch up online if you missed it, um, at inewhope.org forward slash sermons. Last week, today, and next week, we are preparing to go. So introducing some ways of thinking, some concepts that we will come back to as we go through the sermon together. Um, This is really important. So we're going to cover a lot of content uh, this morning, and um, uh, as we do, I'm reminded that, you know... The world is giving us content all the time. We are being discipled in our minds all the time, every day. And we have like about an hour together each week. (laughs) And so you're going to get a lot this morning. Hopefully it's a good meal that you can take with you and produces life. And it certainly is stuff that we're going to come back to. So, you know, the world is full of information and the temptation can be, we don't need more information. That's true. But we certainly need the right information. Anybody agree with that? Okay, yeah. (laughs) You guys are all waiting for me to finish my sentence. That was the end of the sentence, so yeah. (laughs) Amen, there we go, there we go, yeah. Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Um, And I appreciate this quote uh, from Marva Don. The scripture should demythologize the modern world. Like a myth is, you know, like something that isn't true, and, you know, better information helps to see what is true. And the, in our modern world, we tend to look back at, like, ancient times and be like, oh, we've got it all figured out now, those dumb people, you know, right? <laughs> Whereas the scriptures demythologize us and show us what is actually really going on, that there's a spiritual reality, that a lot is happening. And so our time in the scriptures this morning are going to help to reorient us towards what is really going on. Today we're going to back up in Matthew a couple of chapters and discover that Matthew, thankfully, has provided some narrative that frames our walk with Jesus. And um, as it frames our walk with Jesus and frames the work of the enemy against us, it's really helpful for us to be able to apply the teaching of Jesus. So again, this is base camp preparing us to go up the Sermon of, on the Mount. Well, there's a lot more going on than we can see with our human eyes, the unseen world. Uh, just think about for a moment the, the stress that was on your mind before you came in. Some of you are like, why are you making me think of this? <laughs> or the anxiety. Now, you know, there's a few hundred, couple hundred of us in here. Multiply that by a couple hundred and just think about just in this room how much is unseen. How much is going on? And in the middle of that unseen world, there is an evil force at work. There's a lot more going on than what we see. And that evil force is lying to us all of the time. Well, uh, a couple of months ago, Danya graduated, my wife Danya is our children's pastor, graduated with her master's degree, and so I wanted to throw a surprise party for her. And, you know, to do a surprise party, you've got to get some people to lie 
<laughs> and so I recruited a couple of Dania's friends, and they, they, the, the ruse was that they were going to meet here, where the party was, Dania didn't know about, and then they were going to go and do something, have dinner together. And so we thought we'd get Dania here that way. But the Dunny didn't want to come here because she, to meet with her friends because she thought she'd be distracted by, you know, church work stuff. And she said, no, I'll just meet you where we're going to be. So there was 50 of us here gathered to, like, celebrate Danya, and we had to lie again. So then her, one of her friends said, well, my car broke down here at New Hope, and I really have to go to the bathroom. So can you come and let me into the church? And so we, we surprised her. I think this is... Lies are powerful. <laughs> and they can move us. Now, say what you will about my integrity, that I lied to do something good to my wife. I've got to work that out with the Lord. I don't know. But it's an illustration. That's just an illustration of the subtle lies that were not easily detected by Danya and how that, I mean, that moved her. In a negative sense, the enemy of our soul is lying to us, and, and we can be caught off guard and surprised by the places that we go and following the lies of the enemy. He is doing whatever possible to deceive us, and he's clever. Like we don't see him. We don't notice him. We're going to talk about this, but thankfully, Jesus did and Jesus does, and he helps us. Today, uh, we're going to be dealing with the devil's temptation of Jesus in Matthew 4, and we'll discover that these temptations of Jesus are strategically placed by the gospel writer Matthew, because these temptations, which are common to all of us, are needed we need to refute them in the same way that Jesus did so that we can walk out the way of Jesus. These are the same lies and temptations that are against us. And understanding them will ultimately help us to navigate the Sermon on uh, the Mount. Um, so as we talk about like the devil and Satan, um, we, we've got to do some work on that to get us understanding what we're talking about. Um, so some thoughts... <laughs> Some thoughts about the devil as, as we begin. First of all, and this is all in your handout, you can follow along quite easily. Well, I think it's quite easily, and I created it, so if you have any critiques, please let me know. First of all, the devil is not a uh, horned, evil beast breathing smoke and fire. You know, like, that's, that's not the devil. Um, it's, you know, like, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be tempted by that. You know, like yesterday, the devil showing up me like, hey, hey, I got, I got an idea. <laughs> you should totally skip church tomorrow. <laughs> you'd be, you'd say a couple of things. You'd say, 
One, like, stop smoking, man. That's, that. <laughs> it's not a good feel, yeah. Secondly, do you need a mint? That's what you'd say. And then thirdly, you'd say, no, I'm going to church. That's crazy. I'm going to church, right? You'd say, no. This is, this is, you wouldn't be deceived by that. In a classic effort of misdirection, over time, the enemy has created a propaganda campaign against us that veils his true nature. Uh, in fact, in previous messages, I've called him, well, Stan the Liar, to help us. Stan is Satan, just remove one, one letter. So, Stan the Liar. Any stands in here? This is not about you at all. I'm, I, I'm sorry. But this is a more accurate picture of what the enemy is like. Seems straight up, pretty good, but really he's lying all the time. You know, have you noticed that there's certain accents that you feel like, these people are experts. I should listen to them. You know, like when, when everyone, when anyone talks in a, in a British accent, I just, I just lean in a bit. And I think Stan is speaking in a British accent. He's like, but Isaac, you shouldn't go to church. And I'm like, you sound like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I, if, you know, he's like, don't listen to your wife. And I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm not listening to you. That's, that's a lie right there. Yeah. <laughs> if we see Stan the liar for who he is, these, spouting these temptations, they were more easy more easily able to see their, their deceptions. The second thing about Stan the liar, Satan, the devil, he does have authority in the world. We don't quite understand how this all works. But throughout the scriptures, there's a clear invitation to be aware of Satan's working in the world, the devil's working in the world. Peter says, beware of the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he might devour. And again, we might think, oh, we're so much smarter than that, really. The devil, come on then, you know. <laughs> but that's what the scriptures say. And he has authority. Frederick Bruner, who's a commentator I really like, um, he says, our text in Matthew 4 presupposes a doctrine that is more familiar in John and Paul than Matthew, that the devil does have some kind of rule in the world. He does have some kind of authority. So that's... That's true, and we should recognize it. Number three, the nature of evil against us is personal. It's not just general, it's not just out there, but it's, it's personal. And this means that the enemy's after you and your life. He's seeking to destroy you, and he's clever. He's a manipulator, he's a liar, he poses as an angel of light, as like a British person, you know, like he just, he poses... <laughs> to be so sophisticated and he really knows what's going on and yet um, he's out for our destruction. Now the fact that he's against us shouldn't diminish our personal responsibility in participating with evil. Have you, have you noticed that you participate? Yeah, you kind of go with it. Um, when, I was, when I was young, I got involved with some boys who broke out a window in the neighborhood um, I was five, like five years old, and actually the police came to me. If you've been here for a while, I think I told that story a couple years ago, and it's, it's really funny, but um, the police came, and then like a week later, one of the moms in the neighborhood was like, you should not have done that. 
And I was like, well, the devil made me do it. <laughs> That's what I said. I was like a five-year-old theologian. I realized there is more going on than what you see, neighborhood mom, woman. But... <laughs> Uh, This is the better one. Let's read it together. Number four. The devil is defeated but is defiant. We've used the illustration before that on D-Day, the beaches of Normandy, that the Allied forces, when they secure the beaches of Normandy, pretty much that's when victory happened. Victory was going to happen. But for the next year, battles were fought until VE Day finally came about. And that is a similar paradigm where we're living. Jesus has conquered um, the enemy, and yet he is retreating viciously, and he is defiant, and his sneaky snipers are seeking to pick off as many of us as possible. We'll talk about how he is doing that. Colossians 2 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, speaking of Jesus, he made a public display of them, a spectacle of them. He publicly shamed them having triumphed over them through him. That's what Colossians 2.15 says. So we're going to note the temptation of the enemy, how he comes against us. And we will note that the temptations the devil makes are called temptations because they are tempting. (laughs) That makes sense, right? And they're tempting because they seem practical. They seem helpful and because they cater to a part of our fallen motives that reject faith in in God and instead take up worth-making and control. These things that we are all prone to. Greg Boyd says in aside, these temptations wouldn't be temptations for Jesus or for us unless there was a lot of good wrapped up in them. Hmm. So, All of this leads us to understand that the devil seeks to tempt us humans towards taking control. This is his battleground, his playground. God brings us to a place of surrender, a place of humility. But surrender is difficult because the alternative is incredibly appealing. And as we are setting a foundation for how we are going to interpret the Sermon on the Mount and apply it to our lives, I want to introduce a paradigm. We're going to use some new words today, but a way of thinking about history and how history is unfolded. And this comprehension will help us to be able to critique ourselves as we go about bringing God's goodness into the world. Um, so two words, and it's on your handout. It can be helpful. Um, two Latin words, futurum which is the wrong way, the wrong paradigm, and Adventus, which is the right paradigm of understanding the history of the world and God's working and our role within that. So I'll describe each, starting with the one that we should be very careful of. And um, yeah, so Futurum to begin. Futurum is, a, again, a way of conceiving of history and what has happened, which is a human-centered mindset that envisions the future as a result of our current efforts. That the whole of history is the direct result of human choices and decisions. Now, of course, there's truth in this, that, you know, choices of previous generations affect us today. But this conception of history for the Christ follower really 
um, distorts how we should be thinking about the history of the world and our place within it. Illustratively, it looks like this, that there's utopia, like this ideal that we're all moving towards, and that slowly over time, progress is being made through human effort. <laughs> That's me lifting. That's as much lifting as I did all week. So, <laughs> Yeah, now, now listen, when we begin to think of a better future, as all humans want to do, our, our world is always doing this through critiques or promises. We hear this. One, it should be better. Have you noticed that everybody, it should be better. There's something that should be better. It's broken. The system, the world, the people, it's broken. It should be better, right? You hear that all the time. Also, the world promises it will be better. We're going to hear a lot of that as the presidential campaign ramps up over the next year. It'll be better if it's me. It'll be better if it's me. You know, and it will go. <laughs> But this paradigm, in this paradigm, we, we look to the work of our hands, human hands, as a means to better. And here, here is the great foothold of the devil. Once we are trusting in our own work and abilities, we are prime candidates to give in to his temptation and traps and to follow Stan's lies. It's at that place of human effort, of taking the ball in our court once again, and like the people early in the scriptures, the Tower of Babel, building our way back to God. This is where the enemy can come when we believe this conception. Now here's the better conception. The word, a Latin word, which is adventus, which this is, this is good. This is, in summary, uh, a God-centered mindset that trusts God to come and rescue and heal and help. It's based on the Latin word, which roughly means what is coming or approaching. And for the Christian, one who's following God, there's this expectation that God is coming. In this posture, we are able to pray, as Jesus will teach us to pray, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 6, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This Christian way of understanding um, is this. God has come, God is coming, and God will come. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the one who was and is and is to come. That's the song of heaven, as we see in Revelation. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. This expectation that God is coming. And so it, it looks like this. God is bursting in. He is creating and he is faithful in the midst of unfaithfulness. At the time of Christmas, traditionally it's called the time of Advent, where Christians again remember the expectation that God is coming. And at that time, we often read Isaiah 9-2. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And what is fascinating is all through history, we, we tend to move towards that 
future mindset of taking it on ourselves and doing it our way and we get lost and broken and then God comes again and he makes prophetic promises, Adventist type promises. God will come. I will rescue. I will be your God. You will be my people. At the, at the end of history, we'll see that the story is not about our faithfulness. It's about his faithfulness. It's about his goodness coming in, him breaking in, him doing the impossible, him reversing the ills, him redeeming all things. This is the great prototype of this is Jesus Christ and his death and his resurrection. Now we do not even need to fear death, and so we can begin to walk with this expectation. And when we start, when we mentally start to arrange ourselves, our hearts and minds towards this mindset and not the human building mindset, we begin to gain the spiritual strength, the mental strength, the emotional strength to wait. The Sermon on the Mount invites us into a posture of waiting. The Sermon on the Mount invites us to be faithful, but does not promise effectiveness in the world's terms. The Sermon on the Mount, the way of Jesus, the teaching of Jesus, cannot be lived by a people addicted to futurum, a better future created by our hands. Because implicitly within that mindset is we know better. But for people with an Adventist mindset, theirs, ours, is the kingdom of heaven. And for these that have this posture of waiting and trusting, we can begin to flourish, living in what is actually real, what is actually going on beyond all the rhetoric of the world. And simultaneously, we'll be able to bring other people along with us. When Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, he's saying, disciple people in this way. So I'd like to pray, and then we're going to jump into these temptations. And we'll see more clearly, I hope, by the end, how the enemy is seeking to dislodge us all from the identity that is ours in Christ and how that will work. But we need the Lord's help, so I want to pray right now. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would breathe, move throughout this room, enliven our hearts and minds to this truth. Open up, Lord, our, our minds so that we might understand, but open up our hearts that we might take this deeply into our souls. Pray that you would, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. The devil's schemes and Jesus thwarting them. This all, his thwarting of them comes out of a place of identity, because right before Jesus is taken to the wilderness, he... Uh, is baptized, and some powerful things happen here. After his baptism, he was baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And um, after his baptism, as Jesus came out of the water, the heavens were opened up, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and settling on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. So the first thing that happens as Jesus is now stepping into his ministry is that God fills him with the Spirit, and he's identified as being one that brings great joy. Son, this is my son. Son is a relational term that identifies who Jesus is. 
And his baptism signifies his identity, and now he gets to walk out. We live in a world that teaches us that we need to choose our identity. But our identity is chosen for us already. We are sons and daughters of God. Men in the room, say, I am a son. I am a son. Women in the room, I am a daughter. That is your identity, a son and a daughter of a living God. So that framework will help us to say no to the temptation of the enemy. For each temptation, we'll explain the lying temptation, the deception that is hard to see at times, and then give an identity statement in response. And again, this is all in your handout so you can take it home. So for the first temptation, beginning of Matthew 4, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted there by the devil. <laughs> first thing the Spirit does is leads him to the wilderness. For 40 days and 40 nights, he fasted and became very hungry. And during that time, the devil came to him and said, uh, really, if you are the Son of God. <laughs> for all the English people, I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> for the bad accent and for... Paralleling you with Satan. Okay. <laughs> Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus told him, no. The scriptures say, people do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The first temptation is this. Be your own bread maker. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, Peyton worked at Great Harvest. She's like, make your own bread, okay? All right. <laughs> but kingdom people are established through dependence on him. The devil tempts Jesus. Provide for yourself. And it must have sounded good because Jesus was hungry. He had need. But even in his hunger, Jesus did not trade out his identity. He said, I am sustained by the word of God. Notice that the enemy's temptation started with doubt. If, if you are full of, oh, remember in the garden, did God really say? You will notice in your Christian life that you will be constantly thrust by the enemy into identity doubt. And the devil, knowing that liability in each of us, leverages that weakness. If you are the son of God, make this happen. Provide for yourself. Those stones, make them bread. Provide, you have a need. Fill your own need. Don't forget the butter. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I, don't forget the butter is what Mike said, yeah. <laughs> Now listen, um, we need to remove the if from this statement. The if and the question mark. Listen, our identity has been secured by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have been bought, redeemed, forgiven, purified, and adopted. We are in as sons and daughters. Laney's the only person that agrees with that statement. 
<laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> Here's the identity statement. Sons and daughters of the king are provided for. They are provided for. And because of that, we are free. We are not slaves to the fear of not having. We are not slaves to the fear of not measuring up to how others we perceive to be provided for. We are not slaves to this system of always doubting. It's been observed that humans, that this temptation the enemy comes with, that you're not going to make it unless you provide for yourself. You're not going to make it unless you work hard enough. Show that you're worth something. That this temptation keeps us in a place of enslavement because we will enslave ourselves to systems that are unhealthy and then we would rather be enslaved than have to deal with that fear that we have all the time. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to hear Jesus say things like, don't worry. How in the world can we worry if we are not worry if we are the bread makers, if we are the providers? It is a mindset shift. And as he said, it's so subtle because it seems so good. Sons and daughters of the king are provided for. Life is a gift from God and grace is our provision. I like how Brian Zahn says this. He says, if we fail to understand life as a gracious gift from God, we get a lot of things wrong. When life is viewed as a competitive game of acquisition, the strain to stay on top can lead, I would say does lead, to pathological anxiety and a litany of foolish decisions. Life is not a game. Life is a gift. The purpose of life is not to win. The purpose of life is to learn to love well. Jesus never said, consider the kings and the emperors. Jesus said, consider the lilies and the birds. Do this and maybe the rat race won't drive you crazy, he says. Every day the enemy will tear us away, tempt us away from this reality that God is provider. He is sustainer. And only through our relationship with him will we be able to grasp that reality. In our context in the West, particularly like the West Coast of the West, you know, like the pioneers came out this way and they kept coming to the West and finally they ran out of West, so they settled right here. <laughs> Self-reliance was the name of the game. You're your own provider. You make your stuff. You don't need anybody but you. And embedded in that is the lie of the enemy that has a stranglehold on us. And we're going to allow Jesus, by the Spirit, to undo that. The second temptation. Then the devil, after being refuted, took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, to the highest point of the temple, and said, again, if you are the Son of God, jump off. And then the devil has the moxie to quote scripture at the Son of God, but he does. For the scriptures say, hmm, he will order his angels to protect you, and they will hold you up with their hands so you won't even hurt your foot on a stone. He's like, how do you like me now? Sound good? Jesus responded, in the power of the Spirit, the scriptures also say, you must not test the Lord your God. Here is the temptation. Ascend spiritual heights like the Pharisees. But God doesn't need to be leveraged through our sacrifice. 
Now the devil takes Jesus up to the highest point of the holiest place and tempts Jesus to perform the greatest act of faith and full confidence that the word of God will be faithful and Jesus will be saved. Remember, it's called the temptation because it's tempting. Imagine the moment. The crowd gathered below as this man from Nazareth is on top of the temple mount and now he's going to hurl himself down and as he does, the angels scurry from their posts to rescue him and a soft landing and Jesus, leveraging the amazement of the crowd, says, come and follow me. A whole new world. (laughs) That was Chris's idea. The whole new world part. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. All for the glory of God, right? There is no doubt of the immediate effectiveness. The crowds would have been gathered. Amazed. It's called a temptation because it's tempting. Here's the identity statement. Sons and daughters of the king are celebrated for being faithful over effective. There are going to be aspects of the Sermon on the Mount that we cannot understand unless this is our primary of understanding. We're asked to be faithful, not effective. And in that, we'll be effective for the kingdom, but not according to the ways of the world. This temptation, we can all relate to it. It's the temptation of effectiveness, believing that our lives are going to be measured by their results rather than measured by our character. And this is so incredibly challenging within our culture. Like, what's one of the first questions that people ask you? So what do you do? In other words, on the pecking order and the hierarchy of life, where do you fit? Are you really impressive or are you just menial? It's the lie of the enemy that you have to live in this ultimate effectiveness. Secondly, that that is the temptation of immediacy, believing that the means are less important than the ends. And to do something that's impressive now. I've noted as I was reading through this and wrestling with this that Jesus fed the massive crowds with these miracles that were just all like, whoa. He fed the crowds that were gathered, but he never fed in order to create a crowd. And there's a big difference there. There's a big difference there. The way the world is immediate and the way the world is also, this is the temptation of the spectacular, believing that dramatic acts and stupendous miracles are the means of kingdom advancement. Sounds good. That's why Jesus is often walking away from the crowds. Crowd gathered and he walked away and he went and prayed because he didn't need the power of the crowd or fame, the spectacular thing, to make the kingdom happen. Instead, it came in small ways. That's why he described it. The, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. He would say the kingdom of heaven is among you, not waiting for something super special to happen. The Sermon on the Mount, we have to begin with an ethical imagination. That's a way of walking in the world that does not start with what we perceive to be practical or pragmatic relative to the systems of this world. But it has to begin with personal and communal faithfulness as being how we're going about this. The way of the world is effective to the ends of the world. 
But the Christian is called to live the way of Jesus to the ends of the kingdom. The third temptation. And again, we'll come back to these ideas because we have to understand these to be able to um, work through this. Okay, next the devil, the last temptation, took him to the peak of a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he says, well, I'll give it all to you, all the kingdoms and their glory, if you will kneel down and worship me. Jesus says, get out of here, Stan. (laughs) For the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And then the devil went away and the angels came and took care of Jesus. Here's the temptation. Bow to the kingdoms and powers of this world. But kingdom people... Jesus' followers do not worship fallen kingdoms and fallen powers. I'll explain some of this a little bit. The devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. The devil was willing to give Jesus influence. Like, oh, I'll give it all to you. And can you imagine Jesus as emperor? Jesus as general, Jesus as governor, (laughs) I just had to say it that way, Jesus as president, Jesus in charge, but Jesus said no to the powers of this world. The identity statement is this, sons and daughters are not asked to have dual allegiances, We have one king. We sang it. We love that song. And people sing it like, "Ah, you are the only king forever. I think I took it up a key. Josh is like, yeah. (laughs) Um, we, We do not, we have one king. And it's Jesus and his kingdom. Jesus said no to the to the powers of this world, to the these ways. So a question for us is: what is a power of of the world, a fallen power. What are powers? And we'll come back to this. So that these concepts can be, they're new, and I, I hope they're not confusing, but we will come back. Jacques Ellul, in his book, Money and Power, says about this word powers, this term should be understood not in its vague meaning of like force, but in this specific sense, in the specific sense in which it is used in the New Testament. Power is something that acts by itself, is capable of moving other things, is autonomous or claims to be, is a law unto itself and presents itself as an active agent. So some powers, money, Jesus talks about money. Jesus personifies money by calling it mammon, a fallen power. Position, political entities, organizations, Political influence or a power, fame. And most of us have presented with what Jesus was presented with Satan. I will give you, I will give you access and I'll give you this power and this influence and you'll be famous and you'll be able to bring good. Most of us would say, yeah. We want to, yes, that's the way we change the world. We change the world through, through power. 
It's through these powers, through fame. And, and it, it comes into the church. Christians, in, you know, in the last number of years, we've bought into this idea that celebrity pastors and leaders are the ones that can really lead us. That if you want to be powerful, you're, you, you be famous. And that's how the world changes. And God in his faithfulness uses like TV evangelists. He uses people that, you know, he uses that. That's an aspect of his grace, but we should never believe that God needs famous people in order for the kingdom to come. Because that doesn't reconcile with the fact that Jesus preached this mostly, mostly to people who had no power, no fame, and no authority. In order for Jesus to get that position, he was going to have to bow to the devil and begin to operate within the devil's playground where he does have authority over these powers of the world. So the Christians should be very careful. And we'll talk about that going through the Sermon on the Mount, how to profane the powers of the world. <clears throat> Greg Boyd comments on this. He says, he, Jesus, didn't want the authority of the world's kingdom that the devil was offering him. He wanted only to exercise the unique authority his father had given him. Hence, in obedience to the reign of his father, Jesus took the impractical, slow, discreet, discreet, you know, like hidden, not, and self-crucifying road to transforming the world. The enemy will always tempt us with power. Always. This is the temptation of Jesus. Influence the world this way. I'll give it to you if you bow and if you play by my rules, I will give you this authority, is what he says. But Jesus has defeated these powers. Colossians 2 made that very clear. Jesus, in refuting Satan, the devil, stand the liar with the word of God, is refuting that. He's beat the powers of this world and creates a whole new way for us to live and walk out. Marva Dawn, I think, I think it's here, she remarks about this. Jesus defeating all this through his work, it changes everything. She says, it makes an enormous difference in the way individuals and churches live if we recognize that the entire atoning work of Christ, that's including his life, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, has already made the cosmos. Everything is his. Then our involvement operates not from the need to change things, Again, that's that Futurum identity. we got to fix it all. But rather from the desire to make clear what really is the case. That's what she says. All right. Lots to say about those temptations. But I hope you begin to see the framework that we're developing so that we can walk in a way that's different, a way, to the, a way of the kingdom that brings to life and flourishing. So, some application points as we go. First of all, notice. That's just a good word that means reflect, see. Notice the doubt about your identity the devil speaks. If. Did God really say? Just notice that. It's, a, it's an act of assault on you all the time. Are you really loved? Is God really good? No, no, no. Play this doubt thing with me. Let's muse a bit, shall we? That's his playground. 
In a, in a moment here, we're going to sing about who God says that I am. And we have to refute that lie of the enemy. Secondly, notice the temptation to worry and to be your own bread maker. The temptation to worry. Confess that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. We trade out our freedom when we buy into that trap that says we have to be anxious and make our own way in the world. Number three, notice the temptation to be effective for God. This, this affects us all. We really want to make a difference. Jesus said, remain in me and I will remain in you. We are simply to be faithful. Confess only that we need to be faithful. And when we are faithful to Jesus, he will bear fruit in our lives. The life of the Christian is not, fruit. <laughs> You know, like trying to like lift it, like, don't you see how we're doing? <clears throat> you know, no, it's to be faithful, to remain in that posture of waiting, expecting God is going to come. He's going to break through. The story of history is not his faithful followers. The story of history is his being faithful. Fourth, notice, reflect on, see the temptation to think that Christians need power to bring about the kingdom. So easily when we give over to that, we try to serve two masters. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. And I would say the American church is doing this right now. Trying to serve two masters. Confess that we serve no king but Jesus and his power is enough. His power by his spirit has been breaking through generation upon generation regardless of what the circumstances of each generation faces. His faithfulness is true. And we can trust that reality when lay aside the temptation to take up the power systems of this world because we want it faster, we don't want it in God's way, we want to really have glory for ourselves. There's a lot to say about that. We serve no king but Jesus. Well, the world will go on and on being deceived by the enemy. And this is the way it looks. Human effort, trying, trying to construct, trying to build it, trying to make it happen, trying to make it all, this is our work, we gotta, don't you see, we're doing good thing. And this is the way the world, this is like the news cycle right here. And on the other side of it, for the Christian remaining in a posture of humility, expecting that God has come, God is coming, and God will come. That his kingdom is coming and it is coming to earth as it is in heaven. And we have the posture of faithfulness and waiting and walking out in this audacious obedience to serve the one king and not the masters of this world. This is the identity that Christians have always had. And we are discovering it's based upon what Johann Blumhardt said. 
He wrote it in German, but I didn't want to say it in German, too. He said that Jesus is conqueror, is eternally settled. The universe is his. That conception gives us space in our lives to take the right postures. You might have heard of St. Augustine. St. Augustine, one of the most famous Christians in history because of the amazing theological work that he did. His mom's name was Monica, and Monica was married to a man that was not a Christian. And she was noted of living the way of Jesus, blessing those who persecuted her, and then trying to raise her children in the way of the Lord when her husband did not follow Jesus. And then Augustine, who was brilliant, went off and lived a, a, a nasty lifestyle, selfish indulgence in every way. And Monica prayed, and she waited, and she believed that God would come in. She prayed, she waited, she believed that God could come in. And finally, as a young adult, Augustine gave his life to Jesus. And when he was 32, Monica passed away, and Augustine records that he cried and cried and cried because the power of her intercessory prayers, of living according to this expectation that God can, even when everything seems lost, living according to that reality was the power that was thrusting him into such significance within church history that 1,200 years later, Martin Luther and John Calvin and other reformers would be so affected by his teaching. God knows what he's doing. He is breaking in. And we get to take a posture, an Adventist posture of waiting, of trusting this way that is unlike any way that we know in our world. It comes from our identity. We are sons and daughters of the King, of the living God, the one who will never be defeated because he defeated death itself. We'll sing in this next song, I am chosen, I'm not forsaken, I am who you say that I am. As we sing that, would you sing that out in defiance to the father of lies who seeks your destruction, who seeks your downfall, but let's take up the identity that is ours. Father, Son, and Spirit, we need you. We're so thankful for your word that breaks in and reconfigures us, reorients us towards what is going on. We pray for more of that, Holy Spirit. And as we take our identity in you, I pray that we would have the courage and the fortitude to say no to those temptations that seem so good. So if you identify with one of those temptations or a couple of them like I did, giving into them in certain areas of your life and you saw yourself, wow, that's me, would you just lift up your hand as a point of confession that, yeah, I got my hand up, just put your hand, would you keep it up there? Yeah. Yeah, these things are working out in our lives. Holy Spirit, I pray in the power of Jesus' name that you would break the lies of the oppressor that you would confirm and affirm your identity with each of these people. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be in these people's homes and their workplaces and that you would remind them of your, the identity that they have because of you. Jesus, in your name, we break the demonic strongholds that are in our lives. And we ask you to rescue us from our slumber and awaken us to this reality where there's joy and there's peace and there's living in the way that you've called us to live. We trust you and we thank you for it. 
In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Let's sing with James and the team. Let's declare in faith who God says that we are.